Hello. Hello. And welcome to the season three premiere ah! of the New York Mystery Machine. Time to haul, but for ghosts. How exciting. A third season. It's season three. Da, 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 da. It's uh, uh, season three. What's that from? Of the New York Mystery Machine. Is that the song you made up? It's season three. And we are still here and you're here. We're chasing ghosts. No, I'm just, I'm doing our own theme. I'm doing oh, our own theme. You're, I'm you're just making, making words. Oh, I love it. No, continue. <laughs> I thought this as a reference. Like every now, don't think it's weird <laughs> that I think this is a reference I don't know. Like everyone on this fucking journey with us knows that like once every two months, you're like, here's a reference that Adam doesn't get and probably no one else gets. <laughs> But do continue. I thought you would recognize her theme. But <laughs> I couldn't. But now, continue now. Uh, we all want to hear it. Uh, it's season three of New York, New York Mystery Machine. You're still here and we're hunting down some alien. And also ghosts. And maybe monsters. And also murderers and other things sometimes. There you go. That was yeah. Well, I don't understand why that's not just our new our new. There theme. you go. Our new theme. Just we should we just should lay, lay the track down. Should this is, should have been our uh, season three promo. Let's call. <laughs> we should just a our release. Promo. Our promo. <laughs> we should definitely make it our promo. It's our first. We we'll release the first the first two minutes of the episode. Yes. And they'll be like, oh, we're not gonna listen to this. You guys, welcome to the show. We are so excited to be back with you all. What an exciting time. Um, it's kind of crazy that we're here for our, our, our third season. Uh, thank you for, for all of your support. Thank you for everything that you've done to bring us here. Yeah. Thanks um, for still being here, despite the fact that we do things like we just did. I mean, part of me thinks some of these people, I won't, I won't say all. Can't say all. Some of these people are here, not in spite of it, but, you know, because, because of, of it. it. I appreciate that demographic deeply. You know, some people would be like, oh, I'm actually interest, in, interested in these. <laughs> Two fucking these weirdos. Fucking weirdos. <laughs> um, but here we are. And before we get into it, we already said thank you, but we also have to take some time to say thank you to a bunch of special people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the first episode of our third season. And where would we be? without you, our listeners, but where would we be in addition without our patrons? And so I want to take a moment because first and foremost, Mm. while we were on our two-week vacay, Mm. we got a new patron. Woo-hoo! Sorry, I forgot (laughs) to cue. (laughs) I forgot to be happy about that. uh, Their name is Jessica. Jessica, we're so happy you joined our community. Um, We're we're, we're so glad that you've you've joined us on this journey that you listened to this show and you said to yourself, you know what I want to do? Not just listen to more of these people, but give them money so they keep doing it. Crazy. That's a crazy thought. So Jess, can I call you Jess? I feel like we're friends, Jess. Jess. Thanks for joining the community. And while we're thanking Jess, because we're old friends, let's go ahead and thank Chrissy. Let's thank Kate. Let's thank Christina. Let's thank Christian. Let's thank Anne-Marie. Let's thank Sam. Let's thank Carla. And let's thank Jordan. Our Lovely. phenomenal, ever-growing Look at this. squad of patrons. Absolutely love it. And if you want to be part of that squad of patrons. What can they do? It's so easy, you guys. You head on over to patreon.com slash Machine. For as little as $3 a month, you join our community. For as little as $5 a month, you get a bonus episode. And guess what? What? I want to tell you what I'm doing what in honor doing? of season three. Ooh. For this month, so for the month of July, next two weeks, 
if you join at our $3 level, I'm going to give you our bonus episode from July. Ooh, you usually that's don't. a steal. You usually don't, right? If you join our Patreon, you got to join the $5 level to get the bonus episodes. Right. But you know what? This time? I want to inspire you. I want to inspire our $3 a month listeners to be like, I'm going to join for 3 bucks. I'm going to listen to this Patreon exclusive for July, which is fucking bizarre. It is very bizarre. And those are our patrons um, who are our patrons. You already have it. It's right. in your world. If you want to listen to it, you can't. Um, it's weird. But if you join $3 a month, we will give you the July, we'll give you the July Patreon exclusive. And hope that you'll consider upping for two more bucks. Yeah. And uh, getting them every month. I love it. And that's that. It's a steal. It's a bargain. It's a bargain. It's a steal. I love it. Well, here we are, season three, and we are breaking tradition. We are. Because season one, I led the episode. Yep. Season two, I led the episode. Yep. But season three, here Wild she card. is, boys. Guess who it is. Here she is, world. <laughs> hey, it's Christina. Why do you guys listen to the show? It's clearly for the musical. For the music. I think so. I clearly feel There's a through line. It's... Bizarre musical operate. Christina, here I go. I'm ready for it. I'm ready? Gonna, I'm going to okay. say it. Here we go. Where are we today? We're in Queens, New York. Oh, I've heard mixed reviews about Queens. Mostly that it's not even considered nearly one of the most ethically linguistic places in the world. Well, you are listening to some crap liars. <laughs> I hear it's very all white. <laughs> Super incorrect. And uh, shut your dirty pirate horn mouth. <laughs> Aggressive, but here we are, season three. We can only be aggressive. As Christina would say, Queens apparently is the most linguistically diverse community and ethnically, and ethnically diverse community in the world. Yep. Yep. So says yep. Christina's books. I, I have yet to read. <laughs> I've yet to see a fact. I will I will send over some stats and articles. Read, I'm not going to read it. Well, then what's the point? I mean, if I don't read like the things you send me about the show, I'm not going to read things not about the show. <laughs> um, I will die on this hill. I'm just going to make our Instagram account into just facts about Queens and its linguistic. Anyway, we're in Queens. We're in Queens. Um, we're, we're about in Queens. We are in Kew Gardens, Queens. Oh, I, we've been in Kew Gardens before. Have we? The patrons may have been in Kew Gardens before. The patrons have been in Richmond Hill. But then we've been in Kew Gardens, I feel. Have we? Haven't we talked about the subway station in Kew Gardens before? Have we? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe this I think is, you dreamed this, Adam. This could very much be the multiverse colliding. I and think my, that's my what this other is. self who hosts this podcast. <laughs> maybe. Is that that. Very, yeah, may, I think that's what this is. Um, maybe I'm, maybe we have. But regardless, at the top, I'm going yes, to say. Yes, we did. Son of Sam. Oh. Son of Sam. Season one. Season one, playa. <laughs> so at the, the top of this, I would like to do a quick trigger warning that this case um, involves rape and assault and murder. Um, and so take care of yourselves. If this is not the case for you, we understand. Um, so we are covering... A really famous case today that I'm actually surprised we haven't covered yet. Um, it's because we have to like say the really famous. I ones. know <laughs> it's getting harder. Um, so to to sort of uh, situate ourselves, Kew Gardens, um, if you don't remember from season one, is a central eastern neighborhood in Queens, bounded by Forest Hills and Forest Park, Richmond Hill, Briarwood, and Kew Garden Hills. It is one of only seven planned garden communities in Queens. 
So it has lovely brick buildings, many in a neo-Tudor and other English styles and garden courtyards. It is very, very pretty. Uh, for more on that, listen to our sister podcast about architecture in New York. <laughs> it is also connected to the city and uh, and and beyond on the uh, on Long Island via the Long Island Railroad. And just a little little side note: famous people from Kew Gardens uh, or who lived there for a time include actor and comedian Rodney Dangerfield, composer George Gershwin, writer Dorothy Parker, writer I'm going to say her name wrong. I've never said it out loud. Oh boy, Anais Nin. Aeneas? Aeneas Nin. I don't know. I've only ever seen it written. And TV personality, Jerry Springer. So today's story is one whose victim has become almost an idiomatic expression in American parlance. Kitty Genovese. Oh, Kitty Genovese. When people talk about Kitty Genovese, they are almost always using her name in reference to her brutal murder and the popular popular belief cemented by reporting by the New York Times that none of the neighbors who heard her screams responded, reacted, or sought to intervene. I can't wait for you to debunk this. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Um, but first, we're going to talk about Kitty Genovese herself. Let's do We don't talk about Kitty Genovese. No, enough. one. that's the thing. You hear Kitty Genovese and you hear this really horrible crime and the apathy of everyone around and you... Doing this was the first time I really learned about Kitty Genovese. Um, so Kitty Genovese was born Catherine Susan Genovese on July 7th, 1935. Oh, that's today. The day we're recording anyway. On July 7th, 1935, to Italian-American parents Rachel Giordano and Vincent Andronelle Genovese in Brooklyn, New York. She was raised in Park Slope at 29 St. John's Place, attended an all-girls high school, uh, Prospect Heights High School. She was described as self-assured and sunny. Later, those close to her would remember that she was always helping people. Marianne Zalanko, Kitty's eventual girlfriend, would remember, quote, People remember her as the woman who was killed. I remember that she always gave money to people. There was a guy we knew who lived in his car. Kitty wasn't loaded, but she always was handing him something. Now, at some point, Rachel, Kitty's mom, witnessed a murder, and this must have affected her and the family very deeply because Kitty's parents and her four siblings moved to New Canaan, Connecticut in 1954. Kitty, however, stayed in Brooklyn. She had just finished high school, was getting ready to be married, and her grandparents were staying in Brooklyn, so she stayed with them. Not to mention, like I said, she was due to be married, um, and this was a very uh, short-lived marriage. Um, the The whole thing would be annulled uh, two months after the wedding. She worked at an insurance company as a secretary and eventually um, at, at night at Ev's 11th Hour, a bar in Hollis, Queens. She started as a bartender, eventually became a manager, and Kitty was well-liked at work. Um, she worked double shifts and she was hoping to save enough money that she could ultimately own her own Italian restaurant one day. The Daily News said that Kitty traveled with a, quote, fast crowd, unquote, which a led fast to... fast crowd? A fast crowd. What does that mean? Well, apparently, she was arrested in August 1961 on a book, like a like a bookmaking charge. So she was taking bets, basically, for some sort of illegal betting on, I don't know, horses or something. At first, I thought that sentence was going to a different place. I thought, like, for, like, stealing a book. I was like, don't arrest you for stealing books. Right. No. But, I mean, also, like, I don't know. For betting? Yeah. Betting was illegal? Yeah, I think it's... Now you can just go on an app and do it. Well, that's true. What a crazy um, time. Time to be alive. <laughs> um, so, and actually, one of the things, um, you know, there's this somewhat famous photo of Kitty Genovese 
um, where she's looking at the camera, and it's the one that gets used most often, honestly. That's actually her mugshot from that. Um, and the documentary, The Witness, which we'll talk about later, um, her brother basically was like, yeah, I realize that this is this is from that. This is from when she was arrested for the, the, the being a, you know, legal bookie. So Kitty met Mary Anzalanco in March 1963 at a jazz club slash nightclub slash underground lesbian bar in the village known as Swing Rendezvous. They fell in love and together moved into a second floor apartment together in Kew Gardens. At the time, they would have referred to themselves and by others as roommates. Mary Anzalanco was quoted as saying, quote, being a gay woman in that society was very hard. So we were in the closet a lot. In fact, her family didn't know. I mean, they know now, but there was denial there. It was very hard then. In 2004, Newsday described their relationship thusly. Sometimes, if they accidentally let their guards down in public, Marianne Zalanko and Kitty Genovese would exchange a loving glance, maybe even grasp hands for a moment or two. Then, quickly, they'd stop. Now, looking back at two young lovers through senior citizen eyes, Zalanko measures her adoration for Genovese in numerous ways. Love was their regular Monday night sojourns to Greed's, a nearby club where they'd drink beer and listen to folk music. It was Wednesday evening meals at Hofbrau, the quaint German restaurant down the block. It was late night chats and the intimate kisses and the idea that here is a person you can spend your life with. In the end, love was identifying a body. It went on a little later to say, yet to Zelanko, Kitty Genovese is alive. She is still standing there in the Manhattan bar where the, first, the two first met on an early spring day in 1963, running a hand through her short brown hair while taking a drag from the end of a camel. Genevieve is a talkative woman with big brown eyes, an infectious giggle, and a tiny gap at the tip of her two front teeth. And the 25-year-old Zelanko is smitten with her immediately. Within a week, Zelanko finds a note taped to the front door of her Upper West Side apartment. We'll call you at the street corner phone booth at 7. Kitty G. That night, they agreed to meet at Seven Steps, a gay bar on, uh, on Houston Street. Zelanko says Genevieve told her she was once married to a man, but the marriage was annulled once she came to grips with her sexuality. Zelanko was Genevieve's second relationship with a woman. We just hit it off, recalls Zelanko. We meshed. I'm very quiet, and she talked a lot. We both had struggles with our sexuality, as did many people back then. We had a quick bond. I mean, everyone has struggles. I mean, yeah. people struggle with their sexuality now. Right. Yeah. I can imagine, though, in like... 1960, 1960 whatever this is. Yeah. We, like, you know... Whew. We couldn't, like... Yeah. Talk about it. Yeah. At all. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Zelanko would later add that the year that they lived together would be one of the happiest of her life. So, March 14th, 1964, the Daily News ran an article that began as follows. An attractive 28-year-old brunette who had given up a more prosaic life for a career as a barmaid and residence in a tiny bohemian section of Queens was stabbed to death early yesterday. Catherine Kitty Genovese, 5 foot 1, 105 pounds, was stabbed eight times in the chest and abdomen and four times in the back, and she had three cuts on her hands, probably inflicted as she tried to fight off her attacker near her apartment in an alleyway. Late yesterday, police said the 30 detectives assigned to the case had not come up with a possible motive for the savage murder. So here are the events of that night, um, March 13th. On March 13th, 1964, at about 3.20 a.m., Kitty drove home from work in Hollis and parked her car, a red Fiat, in the Kew Gardens Long Island Railroad Station, which was right near her apartment complex. Mm. She turned off the car, locked it, and began walking to the entrance of her apartment, which was at 8270 Austin Street. And it's one of those lovely Tudor-style buildings we mentioned earlier. 
Her apartment was on the second floor and accessible via the back of the building because it was situated above the various first floor stores, uh, whose entrances took up the front of the building. The apartment entrance was only about 100 feet away from the parking lot. Kitty noticed a man in the parking lot, and it is believed this made her uneasy, which prompted her to go up Austin Street towards Lefferts Boulevard, probably in order to call, we imagine, the 102nd Precinct or someone for help. On March 27th, 1974, the New York Times wrote, she got as far as a streetlight in front of a bookstore before the man grabbed her. She screamed. Lights went on in the 10-story apartment house at 8267 Austin Street, which faces the bookstore. Windows slid open and voices punctured the early morning stillness. Miss Genevieve screamed, oh my God, he stabbed me. Please help me. Please help me. From one of the upper windows in the apartment house, a man called down, let that girl alone. So apparently this happened in the you know, the attacker gets scared off. Um, he heads towards a white sedan that was parked a bit further down the block. Kitty got up and began to make her way into her apartment building via the parking lot and the back entrance that we already mentioned. And that's when the man attacked her again. She's reported to have called out, I'm dying, I'm dying. And we'll talk about that later. <laughs> at that point, per the times again, various lights went on and windows opened and a Q10 bus passed by at about 3.35 a.m., all scaring off the attacker once more. Um, but according to the Times, he returned. Kitty had managed to get herself to the back of the building where she sat on the floor near the stairs. The attacker stabbed her a third time, this being the fatal blow, and assaulted her. Mm. Um, it is important to note from the beginning, it's worth noting, some might say. It's worth noting! <laughs> that it's worth noting of the season. Yeah. But it's so somber, I feel like I needed to like not be as excited about it. Okay. It's worth noting! Yeah. The reporting at the time was of three separate attacks mm -hmm. that's inaccurate there were only two um per police reconstructions and more recent investigations um and again we will talk about some of these inaccuracies but again according to the the reporting at the time the police received their first call at 3:50 a.m from a man a neighbor of kitty and the police arrived a couple of minutes later the neighbor along with two women one who was noted as being about age 70 were the only ones present at the scene to greet police Per the man's own admission, he called the police after he had called a friend in Nassau for advice before crossing the roof of the building to the 70-year-old woman's apartment to get her to call. The New York Times quotes him as sheepishly saying, I didn't want to get involved. Jeez. Per the New York Times report on March 27, 1964, the police, and particularly Assistant Chief Inspector Frederick M. Lucen, are quoted as saying, As we have reconstructed the crime, the assailant had three chances to kill this woman during a 35-minute period. He returned twice to complete the job. If if we had been called when he first attacked, the woman might not be dead now. Now we're going to return to this comment and the rest of the New York Times article in a little bit, so hold on to that thought. Kitty would die in the ambulance while on the way to the Queens General Hospital in Jamaica. Marianne Zelanko, her girlfriend, would identify her body at the morgue. In 2004, uh, in a Newsday article, Zelanko said of that experience, of identifying Kitty, quote, it is something that stays with me. Mm. At the time, she couldn't fathom that Kitty was really gone. The police told her as she waited on a bench after identifying the body that they were going to take her home then. And Marianne answered, no, I'm waiting for Kitty. I'm not leaving without her. She said in a 2015 interview with Kitty's brother that she still hasn't healed. She feels she could have saved her if she had only known. I slept with her shirt for a long time, she said. Mm. A few days after the horrible event, 
a man was arrested after being caught mid-burglary, and while in custody, the man, a Winston Mosley, who was an IBM operator, confessed to Kitty Genovese's murder, as well as the recent murders of two other women, which I hadn't heard until doing this. Me neither, yeah. Um, And those women were Annie Mae Johnson, age 24, who was shot and burned in her apartment in South Ozone Park in February of 1964, and Barbara Kralik, age 15, who was stabbed at her parents' home in Springfield Gardens in July of 1963. Both women were sexually assaulted. In total, he confessed to three murders, eight rapes, and 40 to 50 burglaries. Of the murders, he said, I had an urge to go out and kill somebody. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. That is... I, and this is it, right, folks? Like, this is the thing about how it's so very hard to get into the mind of people who, like, commit these atrocities. Because... Mm-hmm. No, I, yeah, I'll, no, I'll fucking say it. Like a normal person doesn't have an urge to murder mm-hmm. somebody, right? Like, yeah, people use the phrase "I'm going to kill somebody." Yeah, all these things to, to like show when they're angry or they're enraged. But this weird desire that this person has to like straight up go out and murder somebody, right? It's not normal, right? Like mental health has to be a part of this mm-hmm. composition because mm-hmm. that's not a normal characteristic of a right. human, right? I had an urge to go kill somebody, and so I so fucking I did. did. Yeah, it's kind of wild to hear it stated like that. Um, yeah. Uh, he, apparently, he spotted Kitty driving home alone while still about 10 blocks from Kitty's apartment, and he followed her. And he added that after the man shouted at him from the window, he, Mosley, moved to his car further away where less people could see it. Or rather, he moved his car, sorry. He moved his car further away so that less people could see it took off the stocking cap he'd been wearing. He's been wearing a stocking cap. Um, and put on a wide brim hat to cover his face to return to find Kitty. In his own words, I came back because I'd not finished what I set out to do. Ugh. Oh, God. Yeah. In the Jesus. end, Mosley was not tried for Annie Mae Johnson's or Barbara Kralik's murders. Um, it's also important to uh, include that another individual had already been charged with Kralik's murder. Um, so didn't get too far down that path, but maybe a future episode. Yeah. Um, cause I'm real curious about how that one played out. Mosley pled not guilty to Kitty's murder by reason of insanity, but after being found legally sane, he was convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to death via electric chair. His death. Oh, wow. Electric chair still. Yeah. So the, he must have been one of the last. Well, so his death sentence was turned into life imprisonment oh, wow. in 1967 on the grounds that the trail had, um, the trail, the trial had not permitted evidence of his mental condition when determining the sentence. Mosley died in prison in 2016 at the age of 81. And to your point, I do think that it's probably one of the last times somebody would have been sentenced to death. Sentenced to, the, to death. Chair, but, yeah. Because yeah. um, New York is just straight up lethal injection now. I believe. Are we lethal injection or did we get rid of it entirely? Are we still? Uh, Are we still? Do we? Is is is? So New York, it's it's, it's in two thousand four. It was deemed unconstitutional. Okay. So there it is. So shortly before Mosley's death in twenty fifteen, Kitty Genovese's brother Bill made a documentary about her case. Again, we'll talk about that. Though Mosley refused to speak with Bill, he did send a letter in which he claimed that he was just the getaway driver for the true killer an Italian mobster named Dominic, who threatened to kill Mosley and his family if he ever spoke up. And it seems that over the years, Mosley gave many bizarre accounts about how this happened or what happened. Um, Mosley's son, Stephen, told Bill Genovese in the documentary that Mosley had claimed at one point that he had just snapped 
in the moment out of racial tension because Kitty was using racial slurs against him. What was Mosley's ethnic background? Black. Okay. Um. So the story sort of as a story that she was using racial slurs, and that's why he killed her. That's one of the things that apparently he said to his son over the years. Yeah. Um. But again, then he said that it was an Italian mobster, and yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really hard to like. Yeah. It's really hard to like find some sort of solace in any of in any of yeah. those. Uh, reasons when it's yeah. very much they've changed over the years right. so the validity is probably very weak yeah um and so now is probably a good time to take a break but when we get back we're going to talk about the claims that 38 people witnessed the murder and did nothing yeah let's get into that uh we'll be right back and we'll see you or you'll hear from us it's a few a uh, few minutes The New York Mystery Machine is brought to you in part by listeners like you. That's right. Head on over to our Patreon, and for as little as $3 a month, you can help keep the pod growing. By joining, you can access a whole bunch of cool stuff, such as mini-episodes, swag, exclusive playlists, and more. Head to www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine to find out more and become a patron. That's www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine and join our ever-growing community today. Okay, we are back. Christina, last we heard, there is the rumor that about 30-odd people heard, 38 people heard Kitty screaming in Kew Gardens that night, and no one came to her aid. Yeah, and that is the, if you know one thing about Kitty Genovese, it's that, right? That people saw it happen, people heard the screams and decided not to get involved. There have been whole books and psychology courses and papers given on this idea of the apathetic bystander mm-hmm. um, and it sort of just has entered you know the American lexicon and canon as as how this went down um, and this per recent investigations is not true um, so one of the reasons this, this came to be, this idea that there were all of these apathetic bystanders who just did nothing, is because of that initial New York Times article uh, a couple weeks after um, after the murder that we mentioned earlier. So what I'd love is for you, Adam, to just read some of these excerpts that are um, really what set the stage for for this idea. The police stress how simple it would have been to have gone in touch with them. A phone call, said one of the detectives, would have done it. The police may be reached by dialing zero for operator or spring 7-3100. The police said the most persons had told them they had been afraid to call, but had given meaningless answers when asked what they had feared. We can understand the reticence of people to become involved in an area of violence, Lieutenant Jacobs said, 
But where there are in their homes, your phones, why should they be afraid to call the police? Witnesses, some of them unable to believe what they had allowed to happen, told a reporter why. A housewife knowingly, if quite casual, said, quote, We thought it was a lover's quarrel. A husband and a wife both said, frankly, we were afraid. They seemed aware of the fact that events might have been different. The distraught woman, wiping her hands in her apron, said, quote, I didn't want my husband to get involved. One couple, now willing to talk about that night, said they heard the first screams. The husband looked thoroughly at the bookstore where the killer first grabbed Miss Genevieve's. Quote, we went out to the window to see what was happening, he said, but the light from our bedroom made it difficult to see the street. The wife, still apprehensive, added, quote, I put out the light and we were able to see it better. Asked why they hadn't called the police, she shrugged and replied, I don't know. A man peeked out from a slight opening in his doorway to his apartment and rattled off an account of the killer's second attack. Why hadn't he called the police at that time? I was tired, he said without emotion. I went back to bed. It was 4.25 a.m. when the ambulance arrived for the body of Miss Genovese. It drove off. Then, a solemn police detective said, the people came out. Thank you, Adam. Um... The next year, in 1964, a radio program aired as a CBS news special entitled The Apathetic American, and it focused on um, on what the psychology was of not helping someone in distress with a particular focus on this Kitty Genovese case. So now it's not only the New York Times as this, it's on CBS, and it's just getting greater, you know, it's getting more and more cemented as, as how this happened. Um, so as it turns out, as I've been saying, this is not exactly true. A 2015 documentary that we mentioned earlier called The Witness, you can stream it on Netflix, reinvestigated the crime and the claim that everyone just stood by. The documentary was the result of Kitty's brother, Bill, spending years reinvestigating what happened that night. And Bill does some really incredible work. Um, The family hadn't gone to the trial. It was too much for them at the time. Um, The kids, including Bill, were young. Um, the mother and father, I guess, couldn't bear it. Um, so it was in the course of this investigation that Bill first really encountered the uh, transcript of the trial and what was said. And, you know, one of the issues, is, of course, this is how many years on? 1964, you know, this is decades later. And so not only... It's almost 60 years. Yeah. Peop- and people... People have died. Yeah. A lot of those witnesses that were on the stand died. But he did a really remarkable job of tracking down people who lived in the buildings, who heard things, who either testified or were at least listed as names of people the police interviewed. And he, he followed up with those he could. So over the course of the investigation, Bill meets with these witnesses. So, for example, Lynn Tillotson, who was about 19 or 20 at the time and lived in the Mowbray building across the street from the attacks, um, she said she heard a scream, went to the window, but didn't see or hear anything else and went back to sleep. Mm. Her parents, also in the apartment, apparently never woke up. So the idea that the screams woke up everyone in the area and that they all saw this, they all heard this, is incorrect because some people didn't hear it, right? And even if you think of kitty's own girlfriend right she didn't know she didn't hear the screams she was asleep yeah 
Um, so already that's a, a difference from how it's been reported over time. Um, Bill let this woman, Lynn Tillotson, know that um, she and her parents were counted in the reports as being among the 38 witnesses who did nothing. Um, in fact, they are reported as having her heard her say, he's done it to me or something along those lines mm. and still doing nothing. And this was the first time Lynn had ever heard of this. She said she'd never heard anything like that. And she and her mom were never even like the, they were never interviewed by the police. They never spoke to anyone about it. Another woman, Hattie Grund, says she was interviewed by the police. And according to police reports, Hattie reported hearing a woman scream for help, but that she didn't see any males present. Talking with Bill, Hattie confirmed that, yeah, she did in fact hear the cry for help. But she added something else. She called the police. So per her testimony in the documentary, she was told immediately over the phone when the, the precinct picked up, we already got the calls. Before she even got Multiple. to finish her statement. Right. So others are calling as well. There are other people calling saying, hey, we're hearing screaming. You might want to come over to Kew Gardens. Yeah. Enough that this guy said, no, 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 we already got it. Don't worry. Hmm. In 2020, the New York Times said the following in an obituary of a woman named Sophie Farrer, um, one of the one of the witnesses, quote, with the benefit of hindsight, the number of witnesses turned out to have been exaggerated. None actually saw the attack completely. Some who heard it thought it was a drunken brawl or a lover's quarrel. And several people said they did call the police. So they they had even previous to this sort of backtracked a little bit and been like, yeah, that might have been a little bit of sensationalist reporting on our part. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, yeah, really. So Sophie Farr, um, or Farrar, um, for whom that was part of the obituary, she, along with her husband, heard the scream. They looked out the window, didn't see anything, and tried to go back to sleep. And then a neighbor called for her sometime around 3 a.m. and told her that Kitty was in the vestibule of the apartment building, hurt. And so Sophie ran to find Kitty, presumably moments after Mosley had left her. And per that same obituary, quote, the door was jammed. Miss Genevieve's body was wedged against it from the inside. Mrs. Farrer finally opened the door and found Miss Genevieve in a pool of blood, moaning and gurgling and barely conscious. Mrs. Farrer cradled her, offered words of comfort, and promised that help was on the way, and yelled for another neighbor to call the police. In the documentary The Witness, Sophie said that she hoped Kitty knew it was her, and that she, Kitty, wasn't alone. Mm. Um, so, you know, one of the things that Bill, Kitty's brother, said is, this would have meant so much to the family. Of course. Right? To, to say that. For decades, they, they just believe that 38 people watch their sister, daughter die mm -hmm. and no one give a shit about it. Yeah. Listen to the whole thing happen and everyone just like put it fucking earplugs yep. in and watch someone die. Yeah. It, I just, it angers me because mm -hmm. like, I know for a fact that couldn't have happened. Yeah. I just refuse to believe. Yeah. 38 people Could be not a one of them would want would care enough to make a phone call to the police we're not asking someone to fucking run down and like and, and, and like and put themselves and, and into themselves the because that's not what you do mm -hmm. but like to to make that that it, phone call it's insane that they that that it was reported that they did it is it's wild and shame on the new york fucking times shame, shame yeah on the newspaper of the world to report that without actually having the real facts absolutely yeah apparently um so sophie's son still lives in the apartment they were next door neighbors i believe to kitty um and 
she was friends with Kitty. Um, and her son still lives in the apartment. And uh, he was talking with Kitty's brother, Bill. And apparently in, in that hallway where Kitty was dying, there were, um, you know, if you look at crime scene photos, there are these bloody handprints. And apparently those are his mom's because when she was trying to get up after the mm-hmm. ambulance came, she was, you know, slipping. So she was there. She was covered in Kitty's blood. She was she was holding her. And it's just incredible that this was, you know, that that even if it was just that that wasn't mentioned, you know, that's anyway. But it gets to this question, right? What shame on the times. And also why? Why this myth? Why did this? become the narrative that they went with. So there's um, uh, a radio reporter, Dan Meenan. Um, and according to a friend of his um, who was interviewed in the documentary, Dan Meenan felt like you do, that something was off with that reporting, that that yeah. couldn't be. Um, I mean, there's so many things wrong, right? There's a reporting, there's... My questions would lie on who is lying, the police or the Times? Yeah, because that's the thing too, right? Some of the, the police notes like the thing are... that I read. I read a thing quoting police officers saying that no one mm-hmm. called and yet there's reports of the of police officers getting the phone call. Right. So who's doing the line? The New York Times right. or the police department? Or or both. Or both. Um yeah, so you know, even in the police records though, most people thought it was a drunken brawl. They didn't hear I've been stabbed or oh my God, he's killing me or any of the things that are reported in that way. They heard a scream and then fit you know, looked down and like, oh, we don't really see anything. You know, or or they saw her, you know, go around the corner back towards her apartment. And when Mosley comes by later, if they saw him come by later, they figured Kitty was already safe. So according to this friend, when he asked Martin Gansberg, the author of that original Times article that made those claims, um, why, 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 why is this attack you're taking? Uh, the response was apparently, it would have ruined the story, quote unquote, if he had said that most people didn't believe there was a murder happening. And why didn't other reporters call the Times out for this? The guy said, well, it was the New York Times. You know, you don't go up against the editor in chief of the New York Times at that time. So it's it's this sort of but cementing again, of... But then again, who, so then who's at fault here? Mm-hmm. Was it the police... Like who, the New York Times gets the story. Mm-hmm. I assume the New York Times calling the police department. So mm-hmm. are we saying that the police department reported this? I mean, or I th- the New York Times just basically fucking lie? It's a good question. Um, and I don't know that we have a good answer because again, like there's that issue of people saying, no, I called and they said they already got the calls. And yet the police do say that most people thought that it was just a drunken brawl. Um, so the Times saying that nobody did anything and yet they saw it all go down is also wildly inaccurate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and even Kitty's brother sort of says, you know, they may never know what exactly transpired, but that there is a reassurance that it's not that people did nothing. Yeah. Um, and that that is, I think it seems like that is some sort of comfort for him. Um, one last thing to mention is that, the horror of Kitty Genovese's murder actually led to the adoption of 911. So at the time of the murder, you either had to call the precinct directly or dial zero for the operator and wait to be connected. Uh, calls for a national emergency number had begun in 1957, but it was the Genovese case that really pushed the rallying cry for this over the edge, and it was established three years after her death. Wow. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I first learned the Genevieve's case in a different book. I read a, a, a book. I'm not sure if I mentioned on the show. I, I probably mentioned it to you, Christine, in life. It's one of my favorite books. It's called Humankind. Oh, you have, yeah. By the author Rucker Brenner. And the, the premise of the book basically is Rucker takes his premise is people are genuinely good. Mm-hmm. They could do good things. The exception to the rule is the exception. Like mm-hmm. the, the bad eggs are the exception, not the rule. Um, because he was sick of listening to people say, well, people are just bad. Mm-hmm. And yes, every, while, every once in a while you get a good person, but mostly they're bad. And so he went on a basically a whole long journey to find, to go against so many cases mm. in which everything from the Stanford prison um, experiment mm-hmm. to... Um, to how people dealt with uh, bombings in the UK during World War One, mm-hmm. um, to talking about um, Lord of the Flies mm-hmm. was a big thing, and one of the one of the cases he, he mentions is the Genovese case, and he talks about all the refuting evidence that yeah. you know. His, my favorite part of the book is how he structures it. He he says the case as we have heard it, mm-hmm. and so by the end of it, you're like, "Fuck, that sucks," and then he goes. If only that was true. And then mm-hmm. he's like, this is the truth about it. And so that's the yeah. first time I've ever heard the counter of yeah. the whole Genevieve's art. Because I've heard it when I, I remember hearing about it as, as, a, as a young person, mm-hmm. but um, never never to the degree of, of the actual information and how it was yeah. bullshit. Yeah, it's it's an idiomatic expression at the, almost at this point, right? That, you know, it's like Kitty Genevieve's, you know, and you immediately go, oh, well, yeah, no one did anything. Yeah. And here we are. And we just don't know who's at fault. I mean, we know many are at fault. Mm-hmm. It's for us to decide... In society, I guess, if the police fucked up, mm-hmm. the Times fucked up, one or the other fucked up, and, they, and someone was covering for somebody, mm-hmm. or the New York Times needed a hot story, mm-hmm. and that's the one they got. Or some common, yeah, some combination of things, you know. Oof. That's that's the story of Kitty Genovese. Um, and one thing I really appreciated about the documentary is that it did spend so much time on her and her biography. Um, because again, that's something that tends to get lost in the Kitty Genevieve story—that she's an actual person. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would love to. You know, if if people do know more about the resolution of this, I assume there is still no resolution, right? We don't really know. We know what happened to Kitty, mm-hmm. but we don't know what happened in terms of what happened to all those calls that night. Mm-hmm. What happened to all this information and yeah. why the story was changed? That's I leave this conversation with you and this this episode just wondering. Who I'm angry at? Mm-hmm. I don't know, I'm not sure who I'm. Who angry should we at. be angry at? Yeah. Like, am I angry at the New York Times? Am I angry at the police? Am I angry at both of them? Mm-hmm. I want to know who to blame mm-hmm. because a young woman is dead because, in part, because of that. Not mm-hmm. really. Not because of that, but like a young a young person's legacy mm-hmm. was tarnished because of that. Yeah. And. Her family for so many years thought that no one gave a shit about them. Yeah. And that's just garbage and awful right. to think that any one of us could be brutally murdered and no one would care enough mm-hmm. to, to make a phone call. And right. so that kind of, oh, that gets yeah. me so, like, angry. Same. Same. Lord. Well, if you do have theories, we'd love to hear them, um, especially on stuff like this. Um, and as often we ask, reach out. Reach out to the New York Mystery Machine. You can do so by sliding into our DMs on Instagram is the best way of doing it, at NY Mystery Machine on Instagram. Or we're also on Facebook at NY Mystery Machine, Twitter at NY Mysteries, TikTok NY Mystery Machine. Or if you have questions, you can go ahead and email us, nymysterymachine at gmail.com. Um, 
we're so excited to be here in season three. We have some new merch coming out for the season. If you're interested in buying some New York Mystery Machine t-shirts, we encourage you to head on over to belowthecollar.com slash Machine. There's a new t-shirt that should be out soon. I don't want to say it now because I'm not sure if it's out by recording, but okay. in the next few weeks it will be. Keep your eyes peeled. Um, and we also still have a few more uh, Pride stickers. If anyone's interested in purchasing a Pride sticker, just slide into our DMs for $5. We'll send you a Pride sticker. Um, for $3, we'll send you our, our plain old regular, still awesome sticker as Great well. Great sticker. So Instagram for stickers, belowthecollar.com slash Machine for t-shirts, patreon.com slash Machine for supporting us on the patreon and you know you know where to find us every week we're so excited to be back we're back um we're back brand new episodes um episode 100 is coming up soon crazy we're so excited we have some surprises in store um we're really really giddy with it it's a fun episode that we have planned as well and so we're really excited to be to be on this journey uh in year three uh so we will see you next week with an another brand new episode of the new york mystery machine i've been adam mace I'm Christina Martinelli. and thank you ever so much for taking a ride on the new york mystery machine tamina hall before ghosts